0: wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining The American Revolution. Today, episode 136, Franklin in Paris. When we last left France back in episode 115, Silas Dean was doing his best to procure arms and equipment for the Continental Army, as well as trying to convince France to support the American cause and go to war with Britain. Recall that Dean had arrived in France in May 1776 with quite a few obstacles in his way. He had no diplomatic experience. He had never even been to Europe before. He did not know anyone in France and did not speak French. On top of that, he had prominent enemies among fellow patriots, like Arthur Lee attacking him from the outset. He also managed to hire a British spy, Edward Bancroft, as his personal secretary. Despite all these setbacks, Dean had managed to establish communications with the French Foreign Minister, Charles Gravier Comte de Vergennes, with the tacit support of Vergennes, Dean had established a relationship with a shell company called Rodriguez horteles and Company, run by playwright and international arms dealer Pierre-Augustin Caron de Beaumarchais. The men had managed to fill shiploads of supplies for America. However, the British Embassy in France, headed by David Murray, also known as Lord Stormont, managed to get the French government to seize most of those supplies. France was still not completely on board with backing the patriots, at least not openly. Even after learning of the Declaration of Independence, France did not want to start another war with Britain. Open support of the United States as an independent nation would most certainly precipitate such a war. Support for the American cause, however, was growing inside France. In addition to the possibly worthless paper money Dean was using in France, his other useful currency was his self-appointed power to hand out commissions in the Continental Army. French officers seeking combat experience would go to America as generals or other ranks higher than they held in the French Army. Many officers jumped at this opportunity. By late 1776, Congress had voted to send Dean a little more help. It appointed Arthur Lee and Benjamin Franklin as co-commissioners. Both men arrived in Paris near the end of 1776. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes, the trio did not get along particularly well. Specifically, Lee did not like Franklin or Dean, and the feeling seemed mutual. Lee had worked with Franklin when the two men were both colonial agents in London before the war. Lee was extremely dismissive of Franklin's diplomatic skills and thought he would be a disaster. Even worse, Lee attacked Dean's covert aid setup, claiming that the French government was giving assistance to the Americans at no cost. Dean's trading company had made arrangements to ship supplies to America in exchange for tobacco and other raw materials. Lee indicated that Dean was going to skim those raw materials shipped to France for his personal profit, taking advantage of the secretive nature of these transactions. Lee knew his accusations were false. He had personally helped set up the terms with Beaumarchais and was just upset that he had been cut out of getting commissions himself. His attack seemed to be a way to get Dean sent home under a cloud of questions. While Congress held investigations to get to the truth, Lee could take over as the key American in charge of French arms shipments. Joining Dean, Franklin, and Lee, the three commissioners in Paris, was a fourth man, Ralph Izzard of South Carolina. Izzard had been living in London for several years before leaving in 1776. As an outspoken patriot, he no longer felt welcome there. He moved to Paris planning to return to South Carolina. Before he could return, Congress appointed him commissioner to Tuscany in early 1777. Tuscany is part of modern-day Italy. The Grand Duke of Florence, who ruled Tuscany, refused to admit Izard as an ambassador for fear it would harm his relationship with Britain. Izard spent the next couple of years living in Paris, corresponding from there with Tuscan officials on diplomatic matters. Izzard and Commissioner Arthur Lee did seem to get along, although Lee also convinced Izzard that Franklin was not competent. So Izzard and Franklin did not get along at all either. It seems that Izzard thought that Franklin should consult with him and keep him more in the loop than Franklin cared to do. The two would continue their ongoing feud in Paris until Izzard was recalled a few years later in 1779. Benjamin Franklin, of course, was the rock star of this delegation. He had hoped to stay out of the public notice until he had a chance to get a better idea of whether the French court would receive him as a minister. He landed on the French coast at a small coastal village called Aure with his two grandsons, William Temple Franklin and Benjamin Franklin Backey. Despite landing in an inconspicuous port aboard a local fishing vessel, the French people mobbed Franklin and greeted him with enthusiasm. By the time he reached Nantes a few days later, the city had arranged a grand ball in his honor. Franklin's reputation had preceded him. He may have been the most well-known person in France from North America. Many of his writings and accounts of his inventions and scientific experiments had preceded him. Frenchmen and women strained to meet the scientist and philosopher who was raised in the American wilderness. Locals began producing images of Franklin for sale. It became fashionable for people to have portraits on their walls. His image appeared on coins, signet rings, and snuff boxes. If bobbleheads had been invented, there definitely would have been a Franklin bobblehead. Reprints of many of his older books, translated into French, of course, flowed into bookstores all over the country. Despite his speaking almost no French, Franklin had little trouble with inclusion in French society. He played into his man-of-the-wilderness persona by wearing simple homespun clothing in a Quaker style. In fashion-obsessed Paris, where more complex was always better, This was almost shocking. Franklin also refused to wear a wig when outdoors or when meeting with others. This was the fashion equivalent today of not wearing a shirt. It wouldn't exactly get you arrested, but it was seen as rather shocking for anyone other than the lowest of classes. But these distinctions only played into the mythos and made Franklin even more popular. This was a deliberate strategy. Franklin knew full well what to wear. When he had visited Paris in 1767, he had purchased a wig and clothing to fit in with society. On this trip, dressed as the plain American, Franklin stood out and turned heads with his nonconforming style. After his stay in Nantes, Franklin made his way on to Paris. With all the accolades along the way, It took him weeks to get to the city. Although he got attention, Franklin did not speak publicly about his purpose in coming to France. His secretive nature only led to more speculation. British Ambassador Lord Stormont spread the story that he was fleeing America with his two grandsons before the rebellion collapsed. While French society greeted Franklin warmly, the government was less enthusiastic. Foreign Minister Vergen ordered the arrest of anyone who suggested Franklin's arrival presaged a treaty between France and America. Vergen was desperately trying to avoid triggering a war with Britain. France simply could not afford a war and was not ready for one to begin. Vergen did hold a discreet meeting with Franklin on December 28, 1776 weeks after his arrival. Silas Dean introduced Franklin and also attended, as did Arthur Lee. At that meeting, Franklin outlined his agenda, which included not only more French military aid, but a treaty that would bring France into the war on America's side. At this time, in late December, France had received word that the British had attacked and occupied New York and New Jersey with no effective resistance the Continental Army seemed to be falling apart and the American Rebellion might come to an end at any day. Although Washington's successful attack on Trenton had just taken place, word of that feat would not reach France for at least another month. In light of all this, Vergen was noncommittal to anything and urged Franklin to keep a lower profile. Franklin realized that patience would be required. However, keeping a low profile was not part of his plan. Franklin borrowed an estate at Passy, a few miles outside of Paris. Actually, today it's a neighborhood in Paris, but in 1776 it was part of the countryside outside of Paris, between Paris and Versailles. The owner of the home, Jacques Donation Le Rey de Chaumont, was a prominent aristocrat who was a big supporter of the American cause. He served the king in several important positions and was one of the wealthiest men in France. In addition to owning several shipping companies, he built several factories for making glassware and other products. Among the products were portrait medallions made for European royalty. And, of course, his works pumped out a great many Franklin medallions after his arrival. Despite his wealth and status, Chaumont was an idealist who supported the Patriot cause in America. His home in the Loire Valley was more of a palace. You can still visit the Chateau de Chaumont today. I have a picture of it on my blog. He kept the house in Passé as a place to stay near the court of Versailles, though it was more than just a cottage. It was a grand mansion with a main house and two wings. There were several outbuildings and gardens. A large domestic staff tended to the estate. Chaumont allowed Franklin the use of the Passy estate, rent-free, along with food and use of the staff. Franklin was living like a French nobleman. Although he eventually began paying rent, Franklin would live there for nearly a decade. Franklin continued to wear simple, commoner clothing and hairstyle, but there was nothing common about the way he lived in France. Franklin sent one of his grandsons, Benjamin Backey, age 7, to a nearby boarding school. He would visit his grandfather once a week. Backey was the son of Franklin's daughter, Sally. Franklin's other grandson, William Temple Franklin, was the 16-year-old son of Ben Franklin's only son, William Franklin, the former royal governor of New Jersey and at the time a prisoner of the Patriots in Connecticut. Temple, as he was known, would live with his grandfather and assist with his duties as part of the American delegation to the court of King Louis. As Franklin settled in, he added one of his lightning rods to the home. He also quickly established his own wine cellar with more than a thousand bottles. Franklin entertained all the time. His fame was enough to draw French elites to his gatherings. Chaumont's wife often served as hostess at many of Franklin's parties. You might think that Chaumont would be nervous with his wife spending so much time with Franklin, who has a well-earned reputation for womanizing. Instead, he quickly realized that Franklin was going after his daughter, who was in her early 20s at the time. The family stepped up efforts to marry her off to a marquis, so that she would not be a temptation to Mr. Franklin. Chaumont himself continued as a booster of Franklin and the American Revolution. As I said, he made medallions of Franklin and also hired an artist to paint his portrait. Chaumont would invest part of his personal fortune in the purchase of military supplies to be shipped to America. He also became an important political advocate for the American cause with the king. Chaumont supported the ideology of the American Revolution, but he also hoped to profit from the arms trade and perhaps be rewarded with land in America should the revolution succeed. Sadly for Chaumont, this would not be the case. He would end up losing a fair amount of his fortune, which the Americans never repaid. During the French Revolution, the government would seize his lands in France. Although he managed to survive the reign of terror, he would die in relative obscurity in France in 1803. And just so we don't end that point on too sad a note, Chaumont's son, James Lorra, did move to America after the revolution, married a Jersey girl and settled in upstate New York. Anyway, after Franklin's first meeting with Vergen, he realized that he would need to be more patient and not push the foreign minister too far too fast. Franklin held salons with France's intellectual elite, not for political lobbying, but simply to use his celebrity status to develop friendships with important members of the French establishment. Franklin went beyond social settings to excite the French public. The former printer and publisher fell into old habits after purchasing a small printing press. He produced pamphlets for distribution to opinion leaders and newspaper editors. Some were French translations of important documents, such as the Declaration of Independence or the Pennsylvania Constitution he was stoking public opinion about the idea of liberty. He also revived an old habit of writing articles anonymously or under false names to affect public opinion. One article claimed to be from the King of Prussia. Britain had agreed to pay for any Hessian mercenaries who were killed in the war, but not for those who were wounded. Franklin's article pretended that the government recommended letting wounded soldiers die rather than sending them home as cripples. This is just one example of many stories that Franklin put out there to turn public opinion against Britain and toward the American cause. This strategy, however, confused the ministry. Vergen commented, I really do not know what Franklin has come to do here. At the beginning, we thought he had all sorts of projects, but all of a sudden, he has shut himself up in a sanctuary with the philosophes. Franklin, of course, was playing the long game. He knew that Vergen was focused on the political realities of trying to weaken Britain while avoiding a direct war. But Franklin also knew the power of a publicly popular cause with the nation's elite. Public support for the cause of America would help the ministry get on board with helping with the cause of liberty and coming to the assistance of the young United States. Public relations was every bit a part of Franklin's strategy, along with actual diplomacy. Franklin also began an ongoing competition with British ambassador Lord Stormont. The British official in France often had the advantage over Franklin and the American delegation. Among the many British spies in the American delegation, Edward Bancroft was sending weekly reports outlining not only what the Americans were doing, but their strategies for future activities as well. When it suited his purposes, Stormont would often make these strategies public in an attempt to discredit or prevent them from happening. Some were simply made-up stories, like Franklin's supposed attempt to build some superweapon using electricity. Once, when asked about one of Stormont's pronouncements, Franklin retorted, It is not a truth, it is only a Stormonter, which was a play on the French word mentir, which meant to lie. The word Stormonter soon entered the public lexicon as a term for something that wasn't true. Franklin followed Silas Dean's lead of passing out commissions to European officers who wanted to serve in America. As I've mentioned before, it was rather common for officers to serve in the armies of other countries during peacetime. It gave them experience and sometimes helped to improve relations between the armies of common allies. I mentioned in earlier episodes that Dean had already provided a major general's commission to a teenage captain known as the Marquis de Lafayette. By the time of Franklin's arrival, Lafayette, had not yet left for America, and had the opportunity to meet with Franklin. But Lafayette was only one of many. Over his first few months in Paris, Franklin, like the other commissioners, was swamped by men seeking commissions. Franklin had to reject most office seekers. For some, he would give them a form letter saying that they were free to travel to America at their own expense and make their case there but that he did not know enough to recommend them to Congress. For others, he might make an offer. One of those people was a down on his luck baron by the name of von Steuben. He had served in the Prussian army during the Seven Years' War as a captain. He had been at the headquarters of Frederick the Great, but never came to any prominence, nor could he rise in rank. At the end of the war, he was discharged for unknown reasons. Some have speculated that it was for homosexual activity, though I've never seen any primary evidence to support this. Whatever the reason, he was not able to get a position with any army in Europe. As he fell deeper into debt, he got word of opportunities to fight in America and went to see Mr. Franklin. Whatever he said at the meeting clearly impressed Franklin. Prussian military strategy and discipline was considered the finest in Europe. Franklin was convinced that von Steuben was the man to whip the Continental Army into shape. It's not clear if von Steuben puffed up his own resume or whether Franklin did it for him. But suddenly, in Franklin's letter of recommendation, the former captain who worked in the Prussian Army headquarters became a lieutenant general who served as adjutant to Frederick the Great. Washington and Congress relied on this letter to make von Steuben the Continental Army's adjutant general. Besides von Steuben and a bevy of French officers, many others from around Europe came looking for commissions. Casimir Pulaski was a Polish noble and cavalryman. In 1772, he participated in the attempted kidnapping of the Polish king, who was planning to sell out the Polish confederation to Russia. After the confederation collapsed, and Poland was partitioned among the European powers, Pulaski found himself on the run, dodging charges of attempted regicide, something the kings of most countries took rather seriously. Finding his way to Franklin, Pulaski also received a letter of recommendation and boarded a ship for America. For the next nine or ten months, Franklin made little effort to push the French government into doing much more than they already were. He and the other commissioners spent most of their time winning over the French people, seeing just how much they could get away with in shipping covert military items to America and waiting for events to unfold in such a way as to make a true alliance between France and America possible. Next week, I want to take a look at a naval commander who was the first to bring the war to Britain's shores. His name was Lambert Wicks. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That’s code ARP50 at factormeals.com/ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. A special thanks today to Trey Nance as a Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon. Trey is a big fan of the show and has stepped up to help support it so that I can continue to cover my costs of producing this show each week. I really appreciate his support and everyone who kicks in a monthly contribution on Patreon.com. For as little as $2 a month, you can help to support this podcast. And every little bit really does help. This week, Benjamin Franklin finally made it to Paris, where his diplomatic skill would eventually help seal the French-American alliance. His use of celebrity, wit, humor, personality, and even a little disinformation all contributed to his success in winning over the French government and people. His story is better known than those of the other commissioners in France because he was such a larger-than-life character both at the time to the people of France as well as today. How much of Franklin's early work in France is less well documented than his later years because one of his greatest chroniclers was John Adams, who would arrive in France in early 1778 and work with Franklin in building the French alliance. Although we will see in future episodes that Franklin and Adams did not get along particularly well either. Franklin's work in France is critical to the outcome of the war, and is sometimes overlooked by historians who don't pay attention to the European machinations while covering the Revolutionary War itself in America. Franklin, of course, is fascinating on many levels for his inventions, scientific experiments, his years of developing a host of institutions in Philadelphia and elsewhere, and his role in so many other events in the founding of this country. If you're looking for a good overall biography of Benjamin Franklin, Walter Isaacson's fairly recent biography does a pretty decent job. But that is not my recommendation this week. I'm recommending A Great Improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America by Stacy Schiff. Now, The reason I like this book is that it focuses just on Franklin's years in France, not his whole life. It digs into court life and European politics in a way that many other Franklin biographies do not. Now, there are a few other books that also focus on Franklin's time just in France, and I mention a number of these in my blog post notes for this week's episode, but most of those books are decades old. The author of A Great Improvisation, Ms. Schiff, has won multiple awards for her many books. However. I'll admit that some have criticized her writing style as ponderous, rambling, and difficult. Her style is a little less than straightforward, and she seems to like telling the story in her own way rather than a simple recitation of the facts. But I still think it's an interesting read and worthwhile if you can keep from getting frustrated at the complexity of her writing style. The main content of the book is about 400 pages, with another hundred pages of notes, appendix, and index. And it was first published in 2005. It's also available as an audiobook if you prefer to listen. So if you want to dig into Franklin's years in Paris, check out A Great Improvisation. Also, today I want to revisit an issue from last week. Some listeners were concerned that I did not even mention Sybil Luddington when talking about the Danbury Raid. Luddington was a teenage girl during the raid. Her father, Colonel Henry Luddington, was a New York militia officer whose regiment responded to the British raid on Danbury. Sybil Luddington is credited with a 40-mile night ride to rouse the militia in New York and Connecticut. She rode all the way to Danbury to warn the residents there that the British were on the way. There are even a bunch of memes on the internet comparing her to Paul Revere because she rode twice as far and did not get caught. Now, I don't think the Revere comparisons are particularly fair, since Revere did far more for the cause than One Night's Ride. I also think Luddington's role is sometimes overhyped in the desperate search for more female heroes of the Revolutionary War. Luddington, however, did play a key role in alerting the region to the raid, and she probably deserved at least a mention. In getting to all the battle details in last week's episode, I do regret her omission. However, if you want to hear more about Sybil Luddington, the History Chicks podcast did a mini episode just on her ride. So my online recommendation this week is the History Chicks podcast episode on Sybil Luddington. If you go to thehistorychicks.com and search for Luddington, you can find the episode. It's a short one, only a few minutes long. Or you can use my direct link on my website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans?